I would assume many people have never experienced panic. The word gets misused, of course. People say they panicked when there was no pasta left on the supermarket shelf, or they panicked when they got a text from the bank saying they'd gone into their overdraft. The word gets trampled into meaningless, like starvation and depression and agony. Real panic is a very distinct thing, and like real starvation or real depression, you sure as hell know when you've got it. I mention panic because there's a lot of talk in nuclear war and civil defence planning about panic, because the authorities and experts in the Cold War They expected us to panic after a nuclear attack. And they knew that panic can drive people into irrational, uh, dangerous and unpredictable behaviour. And of course, that's the last thing a government wants after a devastating war. They need the surviving population to be comprehending and docile, perhaps, able to take and follow orders and not be swayed by great gulping swoops of dangerous emotion. So in this episode we'll look at panic in a nuclear war setting and what the experts said would happen to us psychologically after a nuclear attack. And we'll also look back to the blitz. Panic and hysteria and breakdown were predicted then and obviously in Britain didn't happen. start with my own experience of panic. I've been diagnosed with panic disorder by my GP and I've been on pills for it for the last, I think, 10 years or so. So my first panic attack came from nowhere. It was a a bolt from the blue attack, as they say. One night, going home from work on a rush hour train, the 5.29 from Glasgow Central, it got me completely out of the blue. I took my seat in the front carriage of the train, as usual, put my headphones in, as usual, and got a book out. So I was trying in two ways to block out my surroundings. Probably not a good idea for anyone, any time out in public. Maybe it's never a good idea to have eyes down and hearing muffled. But there I was, on the 529, not seeing or hearing what was happening around me. And then suddenly, someone shoved up against my shoulder, and so I looked up. And I saw the carriage was full, and I mean really full. I mean not able to see the walls or the tops of the seats. It was just people, people everywhere, coats, jackets, rucksacks, 
a metro folded under someone's sweaty armpit. It was just a forest of surging people. It was rush hour, of course, but the rush hour is never this bad. What had happened was that the lights in one carriage had gone out, and so the loudspeaker had told everyone to leave that carriage and pile into the others. And so here they were. And sitting down on my seat with all these people piling in and around me, I thought, oh, I don't like this. But I was <laughs> British about it, didn't want to make a fuss. So I just sat there quietly and more and more people shoved onto the train and I thought, I don't like this, I don't like this one bit. So finally, I decided, no, I'm out of here. And I tried to push myself out of the seat and that's when I heard beep, 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 the doors were closing, the train was moving off, and I was too late. I was stuck on this train. I wouldn't have been able to go off the train anyway, not without physically pushing about a million people out of my way, asking them to step back down onto the platform and think of all the tutting that would have generated. So no, I was... British, I didn't make a fuss, I stayed in my seat, no choice really, and I found that I couldn't look at the crowds, looking up at them, at all those shoving shoulders and damp rucksacks and bag straps and bad tempered, excuse me, and move up the carriage please, it was making me feel strangely uncomfortable, I felt suddenly very hot, it was December but I was suddenly hot. I felt like I couldn't breathe. I have asthma and I could feel the same tightening in the chest which you get when an asthma attack is gathering its forces. I didn't like this at all. But there was no way out. And the train, the train wasn't even rushing quickly to its destination. The train was creaking and rumbling slowly along the way they do when they pull out of a terminus before they've broken free and gathered speed. So I felt trapped. I was trapped. So I turned, I was in a window seat, I turned and I put my face to the window, looked out and I imagined all the cold December air that was outside and I imagined that I could slowly breathe it in. I didn't know what was happening to me but I know that the classic advice for most psychological upset is always breathe, breathe deeply. So that's what I was trying to do even though I had no idea what was going on. But I couldn't calm this weird feeling in my chest. It felt like something was starting to grow or expand in my chest. I imagined it like a snake. There was a big fat snake coiled and curled tightly in my chest, but now it was awake and it was unfurling and now it was rising and rising inside my chest, up through my throat, making me want to scream. I tried to fight that feeling, obviously, and then the panic because I realised by now it was some kind of panic attack, the panic changed. I stopped imagining it as a snake, and I felt that there was a plug hole in my chest, and suddenly the plug hole had been opened, and all the world was water, and all the water was rushing into my chest, leaving no room for air. My face also broke out into pins and needles. Uh, Not my whole face, but uh, a ring around my nose and mouth. If you imagine drawing a circle around the nose and mouth... It was all pins and needles, all prickly. Now, looking back on that, I don't know how I didn't panic. Obviously, I didn't hit a full panic attack. I had the run-up to panic. 
I don't know how I managed to keep a lid on it. I don't know how I didn't scream or start trying to smash a window. I don't know. But the fact is the train slowed again, coming into Queen's Park. Quite a major station, so a whole chunk of people got off and I grabbed my stuff and just went with them. And then I just sat on a cold bench on the platform. Sat there for a long time. So no, you don't panic when there's no pasta left or when you get a text from an ex-boyfriend. Arguably, even I didn't panic. What happened on the 529 was just the approach of a full panic attack. And I managed to escape the situation before the full force of it hit me. But that experience, and others, has shown me that panic is genuinely terrifying. And it can surely push people into irrational or dangerous behaviour. I remember once um, after this, I was my sister was driving me out to Brayhead Shopping Centre and I was in the back seat with her two children and out of nowhere I felt that old panic snake starting to rise up in the chest again. We were on the motorway, so there was no way to stop and let me out. So again, I was trapped. Just as I had been on the train, I was trapped in the car. And being in the back seat with two kids didn't help. (laughs) And I remember feeling the urge to just open the door and jump out. Obviously I didn't. But in the stramash of the panic, that thought did flash across my mind. Irrational, of course, totally irrational and dangerous. A complete severance from any common sense. A total rejection of what is acceptable and normal. A blind rush towards untethered and dangerous behaviour. For me, that is panic. Yes, panic is anxiety and breathlessness and fear. But it's also your mind prodding you towards dangerous behaviour. Populations are expected to panic when under attack or in war. Seems a bit unfair. The generals have their cool heads as they plan the campaigns and the soldiers are steely and brave as they march forth. But we, the dafties at home, are expected to just run in circles screaming. Aren't we ordinary people made of sterner stuff? Well, they... Ordinary people of America did let the side down in 1938 when panic broke out because of a radio drama. Yes, of course, you all know I'm talking about Orson Welles' 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds. It's about a Martian invasion, yes, but Orson Welles had restructured it for radio, presenting it as an evening of dance music which is then interrupted by news bulletins about strange explosions coming from Mars. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. 
The dance music programme returns, but keeps getting interrupted by increasingly alarming news reports. The Martians are coming, the Martians are here, they're wading across the Hudson on their tripods. All over the country, it's the end. I'm sure those who listened to the programme from the outset were loving it, but the poor souls who had just tuned in randomly partway through and caught the dance music and thought, oh, nice, and then were interrupted by these very realistic-sounding bulletins, they must have been scared. Especially given that these are the days when there was no internet, so you couldn't just jump onto Twitter or check the online listings to see that, yeah, this, this is a drama, isn't it? And so, due to that lack of information, we had outbreaks of panic across the US, driven by the fact that no one listening at home could easily clarify or confirm what they were hearing. Yes, you could ring your local news or radio station if you had a phone, but the lines were probably jammed by other panicky listeners, and that would just have reinforced your sense that something was wrong and would have helped nudge you along that road to panic. The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin is handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He... I suppose we can't be too hard on the Americans who heard that and panicked, because we must place it in context. This broadcast, of course, went out in November 1938. We all know, of course, that war was drawing near, perhaps. Maybe it's a cliche to say this, but perhaps they felt a bit removed from it all over in America, but certainly... Anyone who had their finger on the pulse knew that war was drawing near. Consider just now, if um, or if a few months ago, a highly realistic radio broadcast about a plague had been released, when the real news on the other channel was reporting about a possible new virus over in Wuhan. So yes, if you put it in context, we can see why there was a bit of panic. Now let's look at what exactly happened amongst those who were a bit stressed. The New York Times, the morning after, reported a wave of mass hysteria seized thousands of radio listeners throughout the nation between 8.15 and 9.30 last night, leading thousands to believe that an interplanetary conflict had started with invading Martians spreading wide death and destruction in New Jersey and New York. It reports that in Newark, in a single block at Hedden Terrace and Hawthorne Avenue, More than 20 families rushed out of their houses with wet handkerchiefs and towels over their faces to flee what they believed was to be a gas raid. Some began moving household furniture. Throughout New York, families left their homes, some to flee to nearby parks. Thousands of persons called the police, newspapers and radio stations here and in other cities of the US and Canada seeking advice on protective measures against the raids. We also hear that 
Hundreds of motorists scoured the countryside looking for the, quote, catastrophe. Others packed their belongings and drove away from the towns in search of safety. All creations busted loose. I'm getting out, yelled one. Reports that of a gas attack spread so quickly that doctors and nurses offered their services and hospitals treated many people for shock. A man burst into a cinema at Orange, New Jersey, shouting warnings. The entire audience leapt to its feet and the cinema emptied within a few minutes. Now we know that that itself could have caused a horrible tragedy and panic. The whole notion of shouting fire in a crowded theatre. And we also hear... A woman ran into an Indianapolis church screaming, New York is destroyed. It's the end of the world. We might as well go home to die. I've just heard it on the radio. The service was immediately stopped and the congregation dismissed. But what happens when the threat is real? Let's turn to the classic example, Britain under the Blitz. There were awful predictions made by the experts that the population would panic under aerial bombardment, that morale would collapse, that we'd all be screaming in the streets. And as we know, none of that came true. There were individual cases, obviously, of panic and terrible distress, but never the mass hysteria that many experts foresaw. Why? I'm looking here... At the Glawars study, Glawars is short for Greater London Area War Risk Study. It was commissioned by the GLC, Greater London Council, in 1983 when they were asked, as all local authorities were, to drop civil defence plans. But when the council sought more information from the government about what was likely to happen to London in nuclear war, the government went all shy. So the council commissioned the Glawar report, which brought experts from the military, from science and from disaster relief. And they drew up their own picture of what may happen to London under nuclear attack. Glawars talks about panic and it offers some reasons why the British didn't succumb to mass panic in the Blitz. One reason was warning. If a person or animal can be given sufficient warning of a threat, they're better prepared to cope with it. Of course, Britain in the war had a hugely effective national network of air raid sirens, and Glawars suggests that this helps explain why the population coped well with the Blitz and it may also explain why Londoners were more alarmed by the V-rocket attacks later in the war than they were of the conventional bombings. And that's because no reliable air raid alert could be sounded for rockets, those so-called flying bombs or doodlebugs. Of course, one of the most sinister things about the doodlebug was that it wasn't the horrible droning noise you had to fear. If you heard that, it meant the thing was still in flight and so, hopefully, would fly straight overhead and onwards to someone else. It was the sudden silence which brought terror, because when the doodlebug engine cut out, and when it began plummeting to the earth, that's when you heard the silence. 
that meant it was coming down towards you. Here's the sound of one of them. You'll hear the drone, the awful silence, and then the explosion. Another reason for why there was no mass panic in British cities is given in Angus Calder's excellent book, The People's War. He suggests it might have been because those who were prone to fear and panic made sure they were out of harm's way. They'd have evacuated to the country or they would trek out of the city each night to seek shelter in, for example, the caves at Chislehurst or Epping Forest. These people were known, of course, as trekkers. So once all the evacuated children are gone, although a lot of evacuated children were quite quickly brought back to the cities, but that's for another topic. But once your evacuees were out of the way and your trekkers had packed up for the night and gone, perhaps the city is just left with sturdier, calmer, resigned people. Or maybe it was down to pride or to the British notion of keeping up appearances. The propaganda of the Blitz was that Britain can take it, and that was the name of a famous film made to prop up morale and also try to get the Americans into the war. And the film declares the ordinary people of London (coughs) and Glasgow and Coventry and Liverpool and Sheffield and Dundee to be the greatest civilian army the world has ever known. I'm sure the hard-working... Soviet people would have something to say about that. But again, that's another topic. So maybe if you were one of those civilians, maybe you didn't want to let the side down by giving in to panic. If everyone around you was, or seemed, to be Britain-can-take-it types, then maybe that rubbed off on you. Here's a clip from the film. I'm speaking from London. It is late afternoon, and the people of London are preparing for the night. Everyone is anxious to get home before darkness falls, before our nightly visitors arrive. This is the London rush hour. Many of the people at whom you are looking now are members of the greatest civilian army ever to be assembled. These men and women who have worked all day in offices or in markets are now hurrying home to change into the uniform of their particular service. Another reason why there was no mass panic or hysteria was preparation. The Second World War was simmering for a long time before war was actually declared. And so the British authorities had time to issue civil defence information, build shelters and distribute gas masks. In fact, when war was actually declared, it still took a long time for any blood to be spilt on British soil. We had a period of months, nicknamed the Phony War, where there were no raids and perhaps even a sense of anticlimax. Life went on. 
But all that preparation time was put to good use. Physical preparations were made, but also the population had time to psychologically get prepared. The Glawar report also mentions the sense that we were all in it together, which was fostered by the bomb which fell on Buckingham Palace. And the Queen said she felt able to look the East End in the face. We also had the excellent Women's Voluntary Service, nicknamed the Army Hitler Forgot, who raced around British cities, distributing tea and hot food, blankets and clothing, organising bombed-out families. And we had the Civil Defence Corps and the Auxiliary Fire Service, and I could go on. A brilliant range of brave civil defence workers helping the injured and the trapped and the homeless and the frightened on the ground. So that might help explain why the British population never succumbed to mass panic or mass hysteria or the total collapse in morale, as had been predicted. But what about a population under nuclear attack? That's a whole different kettle of fish, of course. In next week's episode, part two of the panic episodes, we'll look at the predictions for nuclear war. What was expected to happen to us psychologically under nuclear attack? Experts took lessons from the Blitz, from the World War II firestorms and of course of the atomic bombings in Japan to try and predict how a population would cope with this new threat. So that's part two next week. And yes, today is Monday. I've decided to start uploading the podcast on Monday morning instead of Sundays. I did that last week with the Kazakhstan episode and it was so popular, the statistics for it were through the roof. So either you all love a podcast on a Monday or it was just a really brilliant episode, but I thought I would try uploading on a Monday morning instead. So look out for Monday morning uploads from now on. Thank you to Aid Brent, who joined my Patreon this week. And please do consider donating to the podcast if you can. You can give as little as a pound or a dollar a month. And if every listener did that, then wowza, I'd be out of here. Um, and those patrons who are waiting for their rewards to be posted out to them, uh, I got a huge parcel from Etsy on Friday. Uh, they do all my personalised Atomic Hobo stuff. Got a big parcel with Atomic Hobo mugs and coasters and a gorgeous personalised copper bookmark complete with little engraved nuclear symbols. That's going out to Tamsin Cater, who's over in America, so I will need to buy a lot of bubble wrap to keep it all safe for her. But please do consider joining my Patreon if you want to support the podcast. Take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And before I go today, let me give a quick thank you to the following patrons. Michelle B, Ian Mackay-Dahl, Tony Newman, Ben Taylor, Lainey Peterson and Jonathan Abelins. <laughs>